You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KBRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site and you can find all of our episodes over on FirstPaw.media and make sure you check us out on social media under the same name, First Paw Media, and I am joined by my co-host tonight. Her name is Tony, and she's calling in from Kenai, Alaska. Tony, what's happening in the mushing world? Uh, lots going on. We've got, of course, the Yukon Quest Alaska going on right now. Lots of other races down in the lower 48 took place over the weekend, so we're all just kind of winding down and winding up and winding down so i'm just trying not to blow away today it's pretty windy here in Kenai. so a lot of the other professional sports hockey and football are enjoying their pro bowls <laughs> all-star breaks etc i know that the super bowl is next weekend and we're sort of at the midpoint of the nf nhl the hockey season are we at that point right now with the uh, with the mushing season? Are we about that halfway point and ready to turn the corner, if you will, onto the second and probably uh, the most exciting portion of the season with the Iditarod and all that? I think so. I think it starts with the Cusco and kind of ends with Iditarod as far as the big races we've had some great races in january but february is where everybody starts really turning their attention from mid mid distance to long distance um, because you only have a couple more races after iditarod at least in alaska and then everybody starts seeing their dog lots turning into just nasty old mud and we're just waiting for the summer tourism season to start so i i think we're about halfway through which is kind of sad when you think about that meaning that the season's almost over, but um, yeah, we're, we're starting to be able to see where the teams shake out, which ones are going to really take on the, the Super Bowl of mushing as Rob Erbach likes to try and call it, or the world series of mushing with Iditarod, um, which I mean, it, it most years is. So uh, I'll give them that. So for all of our new listeners, you probably jumped in during one of our, race coverages that we've been doing for the last month or two. We've been doing pretty much a <laughs> race preview and then right after the race, a race recap. And that's where we got a heck of a lot of fans over the last month or so, as I mentioned. But we do a bi-weekly show where we talk about news, stories, updates, more of a, a kind of a general interest type uh, podcast. So I guess my first question to you, Tony, is if we are truly at that proverbial mid-season, what's the biggest story so far of the mushing uh, year, uh, at least on your terms? You know, I don't think there's one any like giant 
story. I think the overall theme is we're seeing a lot of these races really struggle this year for some reason with keeping the fans not involved, but informed. Uh, that's the biggest concern I've seen from armchair mushing fans. And I know that that's such a minor complaint in the grand scheme of things, but we saw it really happen with the Willow 300 where fans were upset with the lack of coverage that they were able to follow along. It was just, well, follow the tractors and be happy that you're getting anything at all. And now we're seeing it right now with the Yukon Quest Alaska, where some things have been missed or skipped. And a lot of that is due to, of course, where the Yukon Quest runs, and there's not a lot of cell phone coverage. So timing sheets aren't being updated quickly enough or accurately enough. And of course, you know, there's not live feeds or videos, and yet they're seeing all of that happened in the lower 48. You're seeing some of the smaller races in the lower 48 and even some of the smaller races in Alaska giving fans what they want. They want more video. They want more interaction with the, the social media teams. And these bigger races are kind of struggling with that. So I think that's probably the biggest story out of this season so far is just how many complaints there are from, from the quote-unquote armchair mushing community um, just wanting more. I, I think that's probably, it's one of the greatest things that I think Iditarod came up with all those years ago, Greg Heister with his Iditarod Insider, but it kind of unleashed a beast where nobody's really satisfied with what they have. They always want more. They want an ESPN-like coverage where it's 24-7. They can wake up at 3 in the morning and there's still people on SportsCenter talking about it, which I would love myself, but just after doing this podcast, it's exhausting. And mushing isn't like football where it's all in one arena. It's spanned out over so many miles. So uh, that was probably a longer answer to your question that you were hoping for. But I think that's probably the biggest one so far in the race season. You know, I hate to agree every time uh, with what you have to say, <laughs> but uh, we, we've done that in the last few episodes. We've agreed on who we think is going to be the top performers in the races. And, and uh, when we talk about stories like this, but I, I love to have a little bit of give and take or tit for tat. Mm -hmm. uh, but I agree with you. I think that that is the biggest story so far, but I have to push back just a little and get a fan's perspective from this versus a musher's perspective and a race giving or putting on organization. They call them RGOs, a mm -hmm. race giving organization. And I've done that <laughs> uh, for many clubs over the years. And I understand what it takes to put on a race and, grab volunteers and have timers and checkers and all of that. It, it, it's a big process in of itself. And a lot of times fans in particular do not see that side. They don't know who's mm -hmm. out on a sprint trail, uh, you know, moving gates and they don't know who's right. hold, holding up three or four uh, stopwatches as teams come across the finish line. So I guess my question or pushback would be, is it really on the race organization to uh, find the need of the fan? Uh, or is it their job to put on a good race? Of course, we're a podcast of fans of mushing. So obviously that's our, that's our mission is to provide 
information to our fans. But what do you think about these races? And in particular, it seems to be the bigger races that are ones that are struggling with this. Do you think it's truly on the race that they need to make sure that the fans are taken care of, or should they just put on the best race possible and then report on it later? I think it needs to be a little bit of both. I think that overall it needs to be about the race itself and the mushers. And of course the safety and care of the dogs are number one. That's what all the, the races promise. And I think that's what they try to deliver nine times out of 10. It works. Um, there's always that one race that, you know, has the anomaly that something goes wrong. And most of the time it's out of everyone's control. So I, I think in that way, that needs to be their priority. But I think I, you know, there needs to be that communication. We live in a world now where communication is readily accessible. News is readily accessible 24 hours a day from your fingertips. And I know that mushing pushes back on that quite a bit. It's supposed to celebrate the olden days of the turn of the century in Alaska when dogs carried the mail and dogs helped get to the gold rush fields and, and all of that. And I appreciate that. I actually agree with that. I love the nostalgia. But at the end of the day, to grow your fan base, you need to be savvy with communication, social media, PR, you know, live streaming. And I personally, as a fan, do not ask for perfection. Um, I do if you're going to make me pay for it, but all of the races that are that are giving us the live streaming feeds that are free, I understand. I've tried to live feed at different events. I was live feeding one year or live streaming one year at the Testamina 200 just for fun, even though the race itself was trying to do that as well. But even there where we have pretty good cell phone coverage, especially if you have GCI cell phones, um, you know, down here, we, we have pretty good coverage and yet it wasn't strong enough to do live streams for more than a few minutes at a time. And then you had to deal with the weather and the temperature and your battery dying and, and all of this stuff. So I totally get not being able to, and then you add on the fact that lots of these races are struggling for volunteers right now and that you know that's going to go by the wayside and I get that but I feel like races need to at least have somebody there to communicate what we've always had communicated to us as fans over the years from you know disqualifications withdrawals scratches I did a of course always has their little press releases for scratches they're not always great about communicating the penalties and the disqualifications. Um, you know, they just say so-and-so is disqualified, but there's no real answer of, hey, this is the rule that they broke or whatever in most cases or penalties as we saw this last year. And so I think that's where fans can get a, have the right to get a little indignant. The whole idea of, you know, we don't get, a live stream 24 seven on a race like the Yukon quest where there's literally dead zones for hundreds of miles. You have to understand that. And if you're not willing to understand that or make these arguments that, well, they can just get, you know, better technology. Okay. Where's the funding coming from that? They also have a purse. They also have 
uh, gas and all of these other expenses. And that's another expense that right now these races really can't afford. So yes, it is the race's responsibility to grow the fan base by any means necessary. And one of them is social media and live streams. But on the other hand, if there's a give and take, I, I say make it, make it about the race first. But I think part of making the race better and is to, is to have that social media contact, is to have that communication. Yeah, it, it's it's a tough <laughs> it's a tough uh, situation, and we're going to talk a little bit about Starlink Internet here in just a second. And I'm trying to figure out what the happy medium could be with these races, mm-hmm. uh, especially the smaller ones. And I know when we were talking about. Uh, the Willow 300 and about having a dedicated person that's sitting at the, at their desk, whether it's at home or race headquarters mm-hmm. or whatever. And that's their sole job uh, as a volunteer or as a person on the board or whatever. Their sole job is to update social media and the website and all that other stuff. And, and I, I think we just don't see that. And a lot of that does come down mm-hmm. to, uh, volunteers or people that are willing to right. put forth that effort because unlike other sporting events, uh, mushing is a 24 hour a day, uh, race. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if it's a distance yep. race or a mid distance race, it's happening, you know, 24 hours a day, just as much action is happening at two o'clock in the morning as it is at, at noon. So you have to have, mm-hmm. uh, that one person or several people obviously that can do that. So, that's the big question here on today's race is what, or on today's podcast, is what can races do to meet the needs of the race and the racers and the dogs and all that, and also meet the needs of the fans? I think that that's a, a tough one to answer. So if you're listening, what do you think? What would you like to see from uh, your favorite race? What can they do different? What can they do better? What are they doing awesome? What are they really struggling with? We would love to hear your comments as we go. I remember telling Alex, uh, or, or Alex and I agreeing <laughs> on that, uh, social media is a blessing and a curse for yes. dog mushing. When it came about, uh, it really changed the landscape of the sport. And, you know, this comes from somebody that started in 1994, well before internet was a big thing. Uh, you know, they still had chat rooms and message boards and all that when they first started mushing and, and uh, that was the way things were then. So it's changed a lot in, in just my time. So let's move on. Tony, I understand that we have a couple of questions, and one of them relates to what we were just talking about, uh, from, our, from our listeners, from our fans. What's the first one? Uh, the first one I got uh, came in right after we recorded our last pre-race podcast. Um, and it basically was, it was from a listener in Texas and she wants to know how do mushers hands stay warm after hours out there in the cold? Uh, I guess during this polar vortex that they're having down the lower 48, her hands are quite cold after just a few minutes outside and she can't imagine going days on end like that. Yeah, that's a great question. And for somebody that doesn't really struggle too much with uh, their hands getting overly cold, and I know that there are many mushers out there that really do. I remember Lance Mackey uh, in his mm-hmm. later racing years really struggled. What's it called? Reynolds syndrome? 
something like that. Something yeah. like that. It's it's where the nerves are just kind of just firing like crazy uh, in in your fingers and things, and it really plays havoc on trying to keep them warm. But uh, you know, a lot of people uh, there. There's obviously many different ways of people doing it. A lot of people still use the chemical hand warmers. They cost about uh, mm-hmm. fifty cents a pack or so, and. Uh, often they will put uh, one of the little chemical hand warmers on top of their hands inside of a knit glove. So it's not on the palm, it's more on the top. Uh, that seems to work okay. Some people, uh, we've talked about this, use uh, really heavy mm-hmm. gloves, whether they're beaver mitts or seal mitts or something like that. I have several different types of mitts that I use, and it really depends on temperature. I even have a really fancy pair of skunk fur mittens and they oh, wow. yeah they are awesome i mean they look they look so cool uh just just <laughs> think about what a skunk looks like and no they do not smell but um they don't work well at really cold temperatures i would say above zero is the best place for those and i also have a couple of really thick uh, beaver and otter mitts that work really well with fleece liners and all that. But my go-to, Tony, is a pair of knit gloves that you can buy by the hundreds at Fred Meyer's every uh, fall, early winter. We go in and we just buy dang near a whole cart full of them. They cost, at that time, about 50 cents for two pair. And we wear those almost always. And when we're out doing our chores or when we're mushing, we always have on a pair of really thin knit gloves. And we just go through those Mm -hmm. pairs. I don't know how many a year, but it seems like we're buying new ones every year. And then on (laughs) top of that, what I like to wear is just a pair of relatively thick fleece gloves, like like workman's gloves, like ranch gloves. Those work really well because they're tight enough on your hands uh, on top of those knit gloves that they keep my hands really warm. And then I guess the best way is uh, do what uh, the, the NFL guys are doing these days. They have those, those hand warmers that, uh, that kind of look, mops. yeah, yeah. That kind of look like a, a, a fanny pack. And now they have those hooked up to batteries. And I'm sure you could hook that up to a headlamp battery or rig something up where it's going on triple A's or something like that. And then you could just stuff your hands down into those, um, those warm and toasty uh, uh, muff type looking things. And I think that works the best, but yeah, for our listener, it's a struggle all the time. I, I was just out this afternoon on my snow machine, checking out the trails and it was about 10 degrees up here. And I came into the house with hands that were pretty dang cold. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to figure out a way to warm them up quick. But yeah, it's a struggle. And I don't think anybody has a perfect system. So that's a pretty long-winded way to go. Find a, a <laughs> system that works. I guess the, the takeaway here, yeah. Tony, is find a system that works and stick to it. And if uh, no matter what, stick with it. And if you'll notice in those drop bags that uh, mushers are sending out, they have that system down. And it's just repeated over yep. and over and over again. That system continues in every drop bag, no matter the conditions. Does that answer the question good enough? I think it does, and and I I like that your your go to uh, combination for gloves is similar to what I do. I'm not a musher, but I am out there taking pictures of mushers, 
uh, at least a couple times a year. And I, I have to be able to use my fingers. So beaver mitts are not going to uh, be something that I'm wearing. And so I have those little knit gloves you were talking about from Walmart. I have a ton of them. I get them on sale at Christmas time. And then I have a pair of fingerless fleece gloves that uh, you can pull over and make a mitten to keep your fingers a little bit warm. And then I pull the mitten off so that I can snap away at pictures. That keeps it pretty warm. And you can also, when it's super cold, you can put one of those little hand warmers, chemical hand warmers in. So um, very similar. I, and if you're looking for more, I know it's hard to kind of picture what we're talking about. Um, if you are on Facebook, look up Mitch Thieves. Facebook page. He did a few weeks back, he did a video on how he layers up to stay warm. And he does talk about several pairs of gloves that he wears. Plus, I think he does show his fur mitts. Um, or if you're on Twitter, you'd have to do a search. Blair Braverman did something similar to what Mitch did this year a couple years ago where she showed all of the layers that she put on, including her gloves. So uh, take a look at those if you can find them. Um, I'll try to send Robert the links and maybe he can link them up on, on the podcast later. But uh, that's, that's the way to go. Layers, layers. I, I always tell people layers, don't just think about your, your core. Also think about your extremities. You can layer socks, you can layer gloves as well. Yeah, and just one final point on those big, heavy uh, fur mittens, whether they're beaver, seal, or whatever, you'll often see um, them attached by a, a long string of some sort. And it's very similar to what uh, parents do for their kids when they're heading out to school, like at kindergarten age. They'll put a string around their neck and tie on their mittens. Very similar concept. And the reason that we do that, number one, so we don't lose them on the trail, but number two, so we can tie them out of the way. We often tie them around our mm -hmm. back so when we're off the sled, uh, we are hardly ever using those big over mitts unless we're driving the dogs, meaning on the sled, uh, you know, mushing down the trail. You'll hardly ever see anybody uh, trying to work with their dogs with those big, heavy mitts on because there's just no dexterity for sure. So definitely check that out. And I think we have some pictures as well on our Facebook pages, and we'll share those as well. What's the second question, Tony? Uh, the second question was about what we were talking about with the coverage uh, for these races. Uh, we got the question about could Starlink be the answer to mushing coverage? Because one of the big um, reasons why we hear from Iditarod and the Quest and others about why they can't be everywhere to show everything all the time is because they don't have an internet connection. And so uh, they want to know, what about Starlink? wouldn't shouldn't that be in the conversation well tony you know i am a uh, <laughs> a person that jumps on to new technology i will be the first to admit mm -hmm. that i was one of the first few that uh jumped into cryptocurrency when they were talking about it with iditarod <laughs> and all sorts of things and as a matter of fact we have starlink right here at our place uh, we were one of the first people to sign up. We received our kit right around Christmas time or so and hooked it up and immediately saw the limitations to it. 
And it's a little bit different than your typical satellite internet. A lot of people have satellite internet up in Alaska. They pay a heck of a lot of money for it. You don't get a lot of bandwidth. Bandwidth meaning the amount of uh, uh, data that you can use, whether it's going in or going out. And it's very, very expensive. Starlink, on the other hand, is promising $110 a month for virtually unlimited internet. And, And unlimited means one terabyte of internet, which is quite a bit. I mean, it's something like, uh, I don't know, a thousand uh, movies streamed or something like some ungodly amount of of internet, (laughs) more than the average person would use. But there are a lot of limitations. Uh, If you look on, if you look into Starlink, they are just now launching satellites in our orbit, in the upper orbit. I think there's only just a handful right now and if you look at the map of Starlink, it's separated into something that looks very similar to a honeycomb. And as the uh, satellites fly over, your little dish, they call it a dishy, which is about the size of, <laughs> I don't know, maybe a, a large textbook. Not very big. It's kind of a square, rectangular looking thing. And it has to be uh, above all the trees at a 20 degree angle facing north and all this. But as the satellites fly over the honeycomb that you're in, it will send up a signal and capture one of these satellites. Now, the problem with Starlink right now, since there are so few satellites, the coverage is constantly dropping out. It means you'll have five or 10 minutes of coverage as the satellite flies over, and then it'll drop out for a few minutes and then come back in, then drop out, come back in, come back out. Now it's super fast. We're getting 200 gigabyte or megabytes per second or whatever it's called, 10 times faster than our normal internet right now, but it's staggering out every 10 or 15 minutes. We cannot use it yet, even though we are paying for it. It's right now up in a mm-hmm. box in our gear room because we cannot podcast with it constantly dropping out. So you can, can you imagine, Tony, we've been on the air 25 minutes So Mm -hmm. at least five of those minutes would be dead air when I was unable to hear you if we were using Starlink, it would drop out. (laughs) So what does all this mean for race coverage? Well, a couple of different things. Starlink also has what they call RV mode, and you can get a special dish. It costs a little bit more. I think it's about a $800 dish, whereas the home dish is $599. You can mount it onto your vehicle and... Technically, you can drive all over the world and constantly have internet if there is space. Now, that seems to work a little bit better because you're moving into potentially different Uh honeycombs, but it's also still very slow. Now, this could work pretty well on races because in areas like on the Yukon Quest, for example, at Circle or uh, 101 or Two Rivers or Eagle or... Any of those places, if <laughs> if a satellite is in the air, technically you could have service. And right. a, a little bit more of a musher's perspective, uh, Scarlett Hall, who uh, is, um, I believe, Matt Hall's mom, um, grandma, mm-hmm. I'm not sure who, she lives in Eagle River and she has Starlink as well. And she is struggling with that service as well, living in Eagle. So it's not quite mm-hmm. there yet. But I do think it could potentially be a game changer, especially if they get that mounted type 
and then they can use that whether it's you know right. traveling from checkpoint to checkpoint or or whatever it's just not there yet and they're saying at least six months to a year before there are enough satellites in our orbit that will make a difference yeah, and you know, I, I think that it's it's a great opportunity, but you also have to look at costs, not just the financial costs, because you're you're gonna be paying for it probably twelve months out of a year for a race that lasts a week. Uh, not all races have the budget for that and won't have the budget for that anytime soon. It's not like people are knocking down the door wanting to throw money at sled dog races right now for a variety of reasons. But then you also have to look at the man hours, because like you said, any sort of troubleshooting, setting it up in the different checkpoints and all of that, we know that it takes whatever system they're using with GCI on the Iditarod, we know that that takes time to set up and take down because they always tell us, okay, we're, we're taken down now and then we're traveling to the next checkpoint and then we have to set up there. So it's going to be, you know, X amount of hours before you get another live feed from this camera. It'll be the same thing no matter what system you have. And just by what we saw during the Yukon Quest Alaska with their technical difficulties with a hacker taking down their social media page to um, the Copper Basin 300 having issues with their camera freezing up in certain races, to the Cusco Quim 300, who is like king when it comes to their coverage of the start and finish there. Their cameras crapped out on them this year. It's just, it's never going to be a perfect system, but when you're talking about something like Starlink, that's a huge investment, and you will have to invest in people that know how to use it. And that's not always going to be possible for these races. Yeah, it all goes back to what we were saying earlier, volunteers and um, trainability mm -hmm. and willingness to do something. And just a quick uh, recap to that. Yeah, we're paying $110 a month for Starlink, and we have never used it. And we don't think we will use it until summertime. So we'll have $600 of service invested plus, <laughs> plus the $600 uh dish so and and, right. and we're sort of on a wing and a prayer will it work in in you know june or july when they say more satellites are up i don't know but if we say hey we're not interested return it what do we do then then we don't have the ability to possibly get one we'll have to go back on the waiting list right. again and all that so it's a it's a give and take and being an early adopter sometimes costs you a little bit more than you can expect but uh We'll see how it goes, and maybe next year I can report, hey, I am at McGrath, and we have satellite <laughs> on Starlink, and we're reporting live right here on Mushing Radio. So that is two questions. I know you have, and we are over time, but uh, I know you have an update <laughs> about a story that we talked about pretty much leading up to the mushing season about a guy that uh, pretty much put all of his chips on the table and traveled from Maine to Alaska to work with Mitch Seavey. And just like it happens all the time in mushing, it does not go <laughs> as planned. And uh, he got injured right before uh, the Copper Basin 300. Uh, we're talking about Jonathan yeah. Hayes. He's a good friend of mine. And uh, what's the story and what's, what's happening? 
So as most of our listeners know, he didn't get to run the Copper Basin. They took one look at his knee and said, nope, you are going to ice it, and you're going to try and get it healthy enough to run the Willow 300. Um, He managed to get Mitch's blessing to run the 300 with Mitch's dogs. Did really well for his very first race with Alaskan Huskies in Alaska. Uh, He finished, which according to Mitch's training of um, newbie mushers or rookie mushers, it's a pass or fail. He passed as far as I understand it. Um, And then he and his wife, traveled home or tried to, uh, got stuck quite a few times. So their travel was a very long travel home. And when he got about halfway, TSA actually had to wand him because his leg had ballooned up so much. His knee had swollen up so much. So his wife made him go to the doctor when they got home, as wives would do. And uh, come to find out, he blew out his ACL his MCL and the doctor told him he cannot understand how he's even walking, much less having finished a 300 mile sled dog race. So I just an update on him. I know that surgery is probably in his future. I can't see where it wouldn't be. Um, but you mushers, you guys are a different breed. I keep saying it. I, I, I think I told Jonathan that this is a sign that, you know, mushers, we love them, but we think they're insane. Uh, I, I, I scream workman's comp when I get a paper cut at work. I can't imagine, you know, the sled tipping over, getting drugged backwards, my knee popping out of where it's supposed to be, and then walking on it, riding a sled, much less running a race, you know, it, it just, it just goes to show, you know, the hardiness, the stubbornness of a musher with a goal. Um, I know that he had said that one of the reasons why he ran the Willow 300 was just because he could not see investing all of that time and money, taking time off of work, taking time away from his own kennel, to come home with nothing to show for it, which I don't think even if he had not finished or not run that race, I don't think he would have gone back with nothing to show for it. He kept posting all January long just how much he was learning from listening to Mitch to when he was helping handle for the Copper Basin, learning from all the mushers there at that race, watching the race go on. So I mean, he was going back with a lot of information, but he did get his first Iditarod qualifier, and he gets a brand new knee out of it. So, yay. Yeah, and I know we're focusing on Jonathan, but this story has all of the earmarks of a typical (laughs) mushing story. Uh, You know, I've been there. I've been there. I've done that so many times, traveled to a race, and it doesn't go well. You have to scratch. Uh, you know, a dog gets injured, you get injured, whatever. Uh, these happen all the time. And I'm definitely not discounting uh, Jonathan's experience. I would not want to be in his shoes. I can imagine that's going to be a very arduous and uh, long uh, rehab process. Knowing me just going through a couple of surgeries myself, it, it literally ruined my entire mushing season because of my two surgeries. But yeah, uh, it, it, it is difficult. And I think a key takeaway to this, and, and this is definitely not on Jonathan because I don't know what his thought process is, 
But a lot of times what you had mentioned, Tony, is you don't want to go home empty handed. And a lot of people invest a lot of time, effort, energy, money, whatever, to go chase this crazy Iditarod dream. And I am one of them. I moved up here with my family, sold my business and house and everything to chase that elusive Iditarod dream through all the chips on the table. And what happens is, sadly, that uh, sort of shadows clear thought when you're involved with, uh, right. you know, these big time races. You know, you say, hey, I've got $20,000 invested into signing up on Iditarod. I'm not going to scratch at freaking White Mountain. Uh, I'm only 70 right. miles from Nome. I have to finish because I have XYZ invested, time, money, effort, whatever. Or I have to, you know, have to make my sponsors proud or whatever. And it mm -hmm. often clouds uh, judgment. Uh, and in mushing in particular, I'm sure it does in other sports and other endeavors. Oh, yeah. But you can oh, yeah. definitely uh, become blinded by that. And uh, it, it doesn't work well in the end. And we always say it's all about the dogs. And that's something that we preach all the time. But it's human nature to be competitive. Uh, you know, that's mm -hmm. that's what people do. That's why we play sports. We don't play sports to go out and have a good time. We go out there to win no matter what the sport is. You know, whether it's volleyball or mushing or football or mm -hmm. basketball or whatever, all of us have right. that innate competitive drive. And I think when something throws a wrench into that, whether it's an injury or something, it takes, it takes something special to be able to sit back and reflect. And I'm just going to add a quick story here. I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but I know you're very familiar with the Testamina 200. And mm -hmm. I ran that race for the first time, my first or second year here in Alaska. And I'd come here from Colorado, where we have the Rocky Mountains and so on and so forth. But I was told, <laughs> hey, it's just hills, not a big deal. It's the it's the Testamina Hills or, or what do they call it? What's the hills? They called? lied to you. Yeah, the what, caribou Hills. Caribou they hill. lied to yes. you. Oh, they it's, lied. It's just the Caribou Hills. So anyway, they Tony. Lied. Hold on. Let me finish. So they tell me it's the Caribou Hills. And, I, and remember, I'm coming from Colorado where we have you know, 10,000 foot elevations on a dog team. <laughs> so I jump into the race, uh, you know, and start on my way. My, my leader uh, falters out at the start line. So I have to pull my main leader and head out with two uh, experienced, but not race experienced leaders. And I, I mushed my way to Homer. It was the halfway point. And mm -hmm. I pulled into Homer and my neighbor and friend Vern Halter was there at the at the um, at the check-in point there, you know where you check in mm -hmm. with the clipboard and all that. Yep. And he said, "How was it, Robert?" And I said, <laughs> "I said, Vern, that was the hardest hundred miles I've ever done in my life. I want to scratch. I'm done. I don't have a leader. I'm exhausted. It's in the middle of the night. People are passing me going back the other way before I even got here. It was a nightmare." And I remember him telling me, and I remember it like it's yesterday. He said, Robert, do not scratch right now. I want you to go take care of your dogs, feed them up, mm -hmm. give them a good rest, and then come and talk to me in six hours and tell me what you think. Do not scratch right now. And I wasn't worried about qualifying or anything at that point. I just wanted to run the race. 
And I did that. And I thought long and hard about it. I remember sitting behind the dog team and thinking, should I scratch here? Should I continue? I know the dogs could probably do it, even though I don't have a leader. I don't know if I can do it. I was not in the shape to be able to run up and down those quote unquote hills all the way back <laughs> to what is it? Finishing Kasilov? Yes. Yeah, I, I think that was. I think that race. If I'm thinking of the race that you're talking about, I think that was the last year that they finished in Kasilov. Yeah, yeah, it, I believe it did. And uh, anyway, I ended up. Uh, telling the people, I'm done, I'm finished, mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I don't want to do this. I made the decision, like we were just talking about, it probably was not in the best interest, no matter what I had invested. And the last piece of this story, my son Tyler, who was, I think, just graduated high school or something at that point, he was still pretty young. And he had just moved up to Alaska from Colorado. His mom and his sister weren't even up here yet. So he was still pretty green by Alaska standards. And he was staying at our place, or, or my friend Dave's place in Kasilov. And I had to get a hold of him somehow. We did not have a phone at Dave Shear's place. So we had to get a hold of him. And he had to drive from Kasilov to Homer in the dog truck, <laughs> never driving in snow in Alaska in February <laughs> with ice on the road like they have. But yep. he made it. Uh, he made the 100 miles, and uh, we loaded up the truck. And I tell you what, that happened to be Super Bowl Sunday that year. And Yes, it was. And yep. I, I, I've, I've, <laughs> I've listened to or watched every Super Bowl, I believe, since 1971 when I was, or 1972 when I was 10 months old. And that was the only Super Bowl I have ever missed, and I had to listen to it on the radio. So I made it a point at that point right then. I am never going to miss the Super Bowl again <laughs> because of a stupid sled dog race. So that's my story about uh, kennel blindness or making proper decisions uh, because it's uh, for the betterment of the dogs. That, that's, that's my story. I hope, I hope that was enjoyable. You know, what was really funny is you telling that story. I was there at the finish because uh, Mitch won that year. It was the year that the 49ers were in the Super Bowl and they were sucking wind. So I decided to go watch the finish of the Testamina instead, and then they almost came back to win, but ah. I digress. But um, there were a lot of people at the finish line. Apparently, speaking of communication, apparently no one told anyone that you had scratched, and so they're just like, well, Robert just disappeared. We have no idea where he is. He's not on the trail. He's, his dog truck is gone, blah, blah, blah. And I, that's all I remember about your race on the Testamina 200. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I guess, you know, I guess, Tony, and, and what a small world. This is really interesting. You and I probably met there at the start because yep. I have some pictures that I believe that you took um, of my dogs. And I don't, I don't think we ever formally met. And you know what's very interesting? Nope. Uh, that was in... What year was that? Do you know? 2013. 2013. So that was 2013, 10 years ago. 10 years ago. And do you know what, guys? This, <laughs> this, this week. This is, yeah, this is going to blow your guys' mind. Tony and I still have never met in person. Nope. So we have to I've do that. I've met in person with Alex, but not you. Yeah, we have to do that this year. If it's during Iditarod or something, I am going to make an effort to come down <laughs> when you are here for Iditarod and we're going to have a coffee, yes. a beer, an ice cream, whatever it is, 
and we have to we have to definitely meet up and uh, take a picture at least for the website to show that we're that we're hosting right? together. We're real people. We're real people. So is is it is it a date? So when you are here for Iditarod, can we at least hook up for something, whatever? Coffee, beer, tea, hopefully, ice hopefully. cream, whatever. Let's do it. If if schedules allow, sure. I'm all for ice cream or pizza anytime. Very good. So if anybody else is going to be here for Iditarod, and I'm sure a lot of our fans that are listening do come up for the race, hook us up on social media. Maybe we can all get together. I know there there are groups that do that, that meet at restaurants and have this big um, reunion, if will, uh, every mm-hmm. Iditarod year. So maybe we could make that some type of Iditarod tradition, a mushing radio reunion where we meet at a restaurant and have dinner or breakfast or whatever. Let's make it happen, Tony. Sounds good to me. All right. So anything else? We are way over time. What else is on track before we go? I think we hit everything. um, And you said that we were going to keep it to half an hour and I don't think we managed that. So I think we've hit everything that we need to cover tonight. I believe so, too. And guys that are listening, if you really enjoy us talking, I would love for you to check us out over on Patreon. We are doing a after show, a behind the scenes after show. And I thought for sure we were doing one tonight. Michelle was sitting here beside us and has a whole bunch of notes. And then she ran off to make a phone call. So I have no idea if we're (laughs) going to record one of those tonight. But If you're interested in our banter and you want to get some behind-the-scenes stuff, not necessarily radio-friendly, maybe some gossip, maybe some (laughs) insider stuff, head on over to Patreon, go to First Paul Media, and hit that subscribe button or support button or whatever it is. And I think for just $2 a month, you get access to our exclusive, ultra-exclusive, (laughs) behind-the-scenes only available to our Patreon supporters' patrons feed. So check us out there. And we have a bunch of other stuff coming up on that feed, including a video slash book club type deal and some special guest appearances and all sorts of other stuff. We got to pay the bills somehow, guys. Uh, Maybe uh, you can help us out there as well. So Tony... It's been a pleasure. We're going to jump right back into our race (laughs) coverage uh, later this week, and uh, we'll continue that all the way through Iditarod. So if you don't have enough of us yet, hit the subscribe button, and we'll talk to you real soon. Tony, it's been a pleasure. Always. Always enjoy it. All right. Thank you. On behalf of my co-host, this is Robert from Mushing Radio. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.